1: I'm Mick Garrison. It's time once again for the fun-sized postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions is producer Joe Russo. Joe, how are you? I am. I'm good, Mick. But I'm I'm
0: busy. How are you?
1: Well, busy is good i'm uh, I haven't been this busy in a long time either. And also, we should say, as a little tease, we have some exciting news about the show coming up very, very soon that uh, the beans will be spilled soon, I promise.
0: Yes, I am excited to breaking that as well. Uh, and it's nice to uh one of one of our many guests has been keeping me. He's been he's been cracking the whip so uh, I've been <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll let people guess which one of a hundred that people I'm referring to but uh,
1: I know uh, which one
0: I know and, and hopefully <laughs> they'll know soon too but it's nice to take a break uh, away from final draft and, and talk to you.
1: yeah uh, and we've got a couple of new guests we've already recorded that are pretty spectacular as well as all the usually spectacular people.
0: Yes we've got some fun stuff coming up. Um, so shall we jump in? Let's dive. All right, TD Perro asks, "What was your first normal job? Uh, uh, what was the experience like? So, not publicity, not interviews, right? Not, not movie business. Mix. Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. What? What?
1: What was their a first real job? job? Your first I, real I, job? Working in a car wash. Really? Yeah, I did inside back windows, and I shined shoes, and you know, I had a very blue collar life, and it was, uh, you know, it." it paid what I need to paid for. was going to junior college in uh, San Diego County and uh, putting my way through myself through it uh, before moving on to San Diego state. And then my real first job that I like to consider, the first thing I did was I started working at record stores. That's right. uh, The warehouse and then tower records in San Diego. And then later on in Los Angeles. So I, uh, I had a huge love of popular music at the time and was doing journalism as well, but you can't call that a real job because it didn't pay the rent.
0: Right, right. But uh, so, that so would be the, the Did the Tower Records job allow you to move to LA? Was that the job that helped you move to LA?
1: It did indeed. I was living in San Diego with my bandmates in Horse Feathers at the time, and uh, I had the opportunity to transfer to los angeles tower because the whole band had decided it's time to go to la and it was perfect and my brother craig had already had an apartment in west hollywood that he had just moved out of and i was able to get that very apartment and uh, so i had not only a job but a place to live when i moved up to la Incredible.
0: And what a, what a great time to be at Tower Records, too. Uh, uh,
1: it was pretty amazing. Plus, being a music journalist, I interviewed all my heroes and got free records, free concert tickets, all of that stuff. It, w- it was a great time. Well,
0: staying in the track of, of old jobs, uh, <laughs> Richard asks, what do you think is the most challenging element about film publicity?
1: Well, interesting. As a filmmaker, I have an opinion about what's going on now. But as a publicist, I was a publicist back in the days before there was an Internet. Mm. So I was dealing with magazines and TV shows and radio shows and things like that. And uh, I was doing specialized publicity for the genre films, first at Avco Embassy, later at Universal, and then in a PR company called PMK, which is still one of the biggest Hollywood PR companies. I wasn't very good. I had good ideas and we did great things, but um, the hardest thing was to try and get something covered in the mainstream press that they weren't that interested in. (laughs) You know, they were fine with the movie stars and the like, I was trying to promote movies like escape from New York and the fog and the howling and scanners. And so coming up with ideas that would not necessarily go on The Tonight Show or uh, any of the big mainstream outlets was very difficult. Now, uh, as a filmmaker, I don't like to sully myself with that part of the business, and yet it's a necessity, particularly when you're toiling in the independent fields, as you and I did with Nightmare Cinema. And that was trying also, there's so much genre publicity websites and youtube channels and magazines and all of that and podcasts and podcasts especially um that there are outlets and yet it's still a very niche market if you're talking about genre films so um there is so much competition out there because everybody and his sister have a podcast and well and um, I think
0: the advent of social media too one of the hardest things I think is just controlling when and how the information is released you know uh,
1: and it's it's dangerous too if some quote influencer unquote sees the movie or even hears about a movie and decides it sucks and they don't like it and I mean, it's in trouble that sort of thing Rumor becomes fact on social media very quickly, and it rages like a wildfire and burns down everything in its way.
0: Well, I don't know if you remember, but when we had our sales trailer for Nightmare Cinema that we were using to shop it to buyers, right. uh, that a film festival leaked that to the internet, and it was yeah. like it was everywhere. And our buyers were our, our you know potential buyers were not very happy about that. Yeah, um, and that and that and then it's just that wildfire is really tough.
1: And yet it, in the terms of public response, it was great for us. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But no, it was loved just it. too early to be selling it.
0: Yeah. Right. right, so Exactly.
1: That's a very long answer that may not r- completely address the question. Oh,
0: I think it did perfectly. Yeah.
1: I okay. think it did perfectly. Yeah.
0: Uh, all right. Speaking of long things, uh, Michael writes in, I'm rewriting a huge script. I started 25 years ago. Do you have a script that's been haunting you for years, Mick?
1: Well, the timing for this question is kind of great. I know. Because uh, about that long ago, I first had the idea and wrote a screenplay called Jimmy Miracle. And it came so close. Steven Spielberg was going to produce it. And it's a period film. It's set in in the Depression in the Midwest. Uh, it's not a horror film, but it is tinged with genre aspects. hmm but it's a, a really deep human drama that, that has magical elements to it. And it almost happened several times. And I just put it to bed because nothing happened. But it never, it never went away from me. This idea haunted me the whole time. For years, I thought maybe I should write it as a drama. But just recently, I rewrote it from page one in a different perspective and one that was really exciting to me that deepened it quite a bit. And I just optioned it almost immediately after doing that rewrite. And I'm really excited about it. We'll, we'll be announcing it soon, maybe within the next week or so, but um, it is set up with producers. I really admire and uh, it's, it's really exciting. So yeah, the, the trunk scripts never die. And in this case, yeah, You know, it's one of my favorite scripts and and maybe it has a chance to see the big screen.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And and it's a terrific script and a terrific read, too. And, Ah, you you know, the thing that the thing that I'm working on right now was on the blood list in 2018. And hmm. we didn't sell it until 2020, fall 2020. So, yeah, I mean, you never know when you Two write Two whole years, when, Joe. <laughs> well, th- <laughs> the blink I, of I, an I, eye. I, well, I know, comparatively, yes. But the point is, you never know. Like, it just because you write it right away doesn't mean it's going to sell right away. Um, so,
1: Definitely uh, no. you know,
0: a, gr- a great piece of material never gets old. I think that's that's the point of what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah, especially uh, if it's a period piece like this one was. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Uh, all right. Lee Hodkinson asks, would you ever want to adapt any of your own novels to screen and which stories?
1: Um, I would love to. Uh, usually the reason I write them as fiction, as opposed to movies is that they may not have a really clear, um, marketable logline that you can say in one line, or it's something that's not necessarily overtly commercial in the marketplace at the time. But a good story is a good story. And my favorite movies are the ones that come out that aren't like everything else at the time.
0: On that note, uh, James wants to know, have you ever considered turning any of your untold scripts into literary adaptations?
1: Well, usually they're written as screenplays to be movies. And that Is there raison d'etre? In the case of Jimmy Miracle, that was one that I thought could easily become a novel. And that's the one I really put a lot of thought into turning into a novel uh, until I had this revelation uh, of a new approach that I could take to turn it into something really uh, special as a film. But that's the only one I really put a lot of thought into turning into a book. The others have gone the other way, like Chocolate was a short story before it became a screenplay that was crunched down to become uh, my first Masters of Horror episode. Uh, So the literary and the cinematic like to hold hands sometimes.
0: I in the mind writes, Mick and Joe, have you ever written something too graphic for the screen (laughs) that either wasn't shot or didn't make it in the edit?
1: no um usually you know what you're shooting for and uh there are things uh, you know i I did some scenes in freddie's nightmares that were cut out of the local broadcast when it was aired here in los angeles the local station cut those scenes out but the rest of the country didn't um the self-censorship is something that you can't avoid if you're writing for movies or television you have a pretty good idea of what's acceptable and what's not when you're shooting you try and you know uh stretch the boundaries a bit um but even when i've stretched the boundaries there there were some things in the stand that were cut the rape scene of nadine was uh mitigated a bit but not not in a way that bothered me um my imagination can become pretty explicit but my books are much more so than my film and television work. But you know what you're working for and you don't want to spend 2 days shooting a scene you can't put in the film. You know, use that time for the production that means something and so you're not scrambling to try and make your your schedule
0: yeah, no, we're we're going through that right now. We got pretty specific parameters from the studio about what we can and can't show in terms of violence and gore and such. So we're just making sure that we're working within those boundaries. The only time I can think that I got quote unquote censored was in the opera nightmare, which was you know a thriller for TV. There was a shot where um, they were about to inject someone with a needle. And we did a rack focus between the needle and a close-up of someone's eyeball. (laughs) And it was a really cool shot, and I loved it. But for some reason, it was deemed, quote-unquote, too scary. Well, Uh, it was
1: for a lifetime. (laughs) Right. But to
0: me, that was like, it's just a needle, you know? We're all getting jabbed with needles right now. but That's for sure. Anyway. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I, but I'll, I'll always miss that shot. Cause I always thought it was a really cool little cinematic moment, but uh, that's the only director's
1: cut could- director's cut. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, so speaking of things that are scary, uh, Marco <laughs> wants to know Joe and Mick have either of you ever experienced anything paranormal? If so, do tell,
1: you know, uh, I don't really believe in the paranormal, and yet I would love to be proved wrong. I would love to have the experience that proves me wrong. The closest thing I came to it was twice on The Shining. First, when I was scouting locations, I stayed in room 217 at the Stanley Hotel, which is the Overlook, and I fell asleep early. We'd had a long scouting day and we're looking and all, and I conked out, and exactly midnight, I woke up wide awake. That's about it, <laughs> but so that that's mildly paranormal, but nothing to turn me into a believer. The other one was when we were in the lobby of the Stanley Hotel shooting. No one was staying in the hotel. Only cast and crew were there, and we were shooting a scene in the lobby, and everyone on the on the crew was there and so we're shooting and directly above us there was this really heavy clanging noise clang 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 and it would ruin take after take after take finally you know we sent a couple pas up there there was nobody up there and it was coming from the room that our first ad was staying in but nobody could ever find anything we kept watching it and it clang clang clanged but we could never find the source Oh, wow. So I had
0: I'd never had a ghost or supernatural experience, but I did see a UFO once. Ah. Um, so that's that's the closest I've come. I was working on a sci-fi channel ghost hunters, myth busters type reality show, and I was a camera operator. And we were uh there's this phenomenon called the Phoenix Lights. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Sure. Um, but uh We were out in the desert in Arizona trying to debunk whether or not the Phoenix Lights was a real thing. And we were running all sorts of different experiments to try to say, could it have been this? Could it have been a weather balloon? Could it be whatever? And we were out there in the middle of the night, probably two o'clock in the morning, pitch black out in the desert. And all of a sudden, we see something up in the sky. Everybody in the crew sees it. And we all turn and we look. And they're basically like, point the cameras up, point the cameras up. And we all see this light zip left, zip right, zip left, zip right, and then whew, off. Wow! And nothing like nothing could have ever moved that quickly, you know. Uh, and the craziest part though was none of the cameras picked it up. Oh uh, no! Yep. All all, 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 But everybody saw it. Uh, wow. So it was really, it was really kind of like just a chilling thing. Uh, but that's that's the closest I've come to anything supernatural or strange. Uh,
1: I love that.
0: Yeah. Well, Mick, uh, that is what I got for this episode of ask Mick anything.
1: Well, thanks everybody for your questions. And I'm always happy to answer whatever questions you have for me. So you can ask Mick anything uh, by going to Joe Russo tweets on Twitter uh, to the postmortem with Mick Garris, Facebook page, and also at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram. So, Joe, thank you so much, and we'll see you very soon. Thank you, Mick. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to Producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new
1: episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.